Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Fuzz and Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Hello! And our theme for this episode is the con movie. Now, there's no reason, topical or otherwise, for us doing this theme now, other than that this is what we fancied doing this month. <laughs> so, we picked six films from the genre, watched them, and now we'll talk about them and tell you what we thought. No misdirections, ulterior motives, or crafty scams from us here. Well, not this time anyway. <laughs> we'll leave that to the films. One thing before we go on, we're generally not too careful about spoilers on this podcast, as the films we talk about usually aren't recent releases, at least in our main slots, but I think for this episode it's worth sounding a general all-episode, all-purpose spoiler warning due to the fact that the plot and plot twists are very much the point of most of these films, and we're unlikely to be able to avoid talking about them. You have been advised. And now, join us and become informed. We're going to begin with a film more about the the Connors than the con itself, and that's going back to mid-1950s Italy with Il Bedoni. Scott, what is that all about? Yes, Il Bedoni, or the drum, as I guess it's kind of almost literally translated, and the swindle, as it's more commonly known to those outside of the Roman Empire, is a relatively early outing in the directorial career of one Federico Fellini, in which we follow a gang of swindlers, the eldest, Broderick Crawford's Augusto Rocco in particular, as they go about their lives of larceny. Also featured are Richard Basart's Carlo, also known as Picasso, and Franco Fabrizzi's Roberto Giorgio, which is surely the most Italian name possible. Uh, Rocco's current wheeze is dressing up like some high-ranking church dude or other and spinning a tale to remote farmers of a confession leading them to the buried treasure of a near-do-well stash and that perhaps his con padres could go and search for it. Uh, The church, having no interest, of course, in the contents of the box of gold, just a small tithe of all the cash that you have to ensure that the heavenly accounting is in order or something like that. I don't really know the proper terms of this loony cult stuff. Um, At any rate, uh, they're making poor people poorer and themselves briefly richer until they spend it all on booze and floozies. And so it goes, although Picasso has enough shame to quit the game once his wife finds out that he's not the travelling salesman that he claimed to be, and a chance meeting with Rocco's estranged daughter seems to be threatening a similar crisis of conscience. But before that can be fully percolated, he's uh, recognised, arrested and jailed, only to be later released to get up to more desperate versions of his crimes, and, well, it does not end well for Rocco. Now, to my great shame, I don't know Fellini's work well enough to tell you how this sits in the body of his work, really, but I can at least tell you that in the context of this podcast, it's a bit of an outlier, inasmuch as you mentioned earlier, Drew, it's primarily a character piece. Uh, Not to say that the characters aren't important in the rest of the films we'll talk about, but the main narrative propulsive driver in them is the sting itself, and that's not the case in El Bedoni, which is more concerned with the psychology and relationships of the con artists themselves, particularly Rocco. It's also an outlier in the sense uh, that in this kind of thing, broadly speaking, the general way an audience makes its peace with being asked to care about swindlers is by having them swindler, uh, swindle even bigger swindlers. And what's maybe the exact opposite of what Fellini has become known for, this shows us grubby criminals swindling vulnerable, desperately poor people out of what little they have in ways that seem all too realistic as opposed to the high concept glossiness of the modern con mm. film. It more or less pulls off, sometimes in spite of itself. <laughs> Enough of the criminal gang show at least some sense of remorse or at least culpability in their actions throughout the piece to avoid this feeling completely repulsive, but there's no getting around Rocco being ultimately irredeemable, which I might have forgiven if there was a deeper dive into his character or his history. Um, in short, if this, if in this character piece we got some real sense of his character, but I don't think we do or at least not quite enough to be satisfying. Uh, Broderick Crawford is not helped uh, by the dubbing, of course, but I'm left feeling that his character is just not interesting enough to warrant 100 odd minutes of celluloid. If you can deal with the moral repugnance of most of what's going on here, there's a very watchable film, but it's not exactly fun in the way that a lot of the other films we'll talk about here are. And if you really want a proper character study of criminality, I'm sure there's better options around, so I'm not giving this a full-throated recommendation, but neither would I steer you away from it. Uh, But it's certainly no undiscovered Fellini masterpiece or anything like that. Uh, Drew, do you have any uh, thoughts on this one? Uh, They're quite similar to yours, Scott. It's... And it's a good film, it's well made, but it, yes, it doesn't really delve into what's making him tick, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps that's a statement in the character himself, he's kind of um, incorrigible. He's yeah. just like a rotter through and through. 
and I don't know, just yeah, I find myself like wanting a bit more, and I can I suppose there there is interest enough in itself of like, well, yeah, this character is it's incorrigible. He's just a bad guy who can't ever get out of this, even if at the end there's like a faint towards that. But it's it's maybe slightly less selfish because he's stealing for all the poor people to, to get something for his daughter. Yeah, um, whether that would ever reach her had he been successful, who knows? Yeah, but yeah, that's you um, very much hit the nail on the head about how I felt about this the the general grubbiness. Yeah, like after it's, watching this, you kind of feel like you need a shower because these people are not nice. Because, I mean, you might argue in some situations that the the people themselves might be. I don't know, greedy or avaricious, think, oh, I can get something here with this money. doesn't take away from the fact they're desperately poor and it absolutely doesn't explore the idea that, wait a minute, these people are going to scrape together their life savings, not because they're greedy, but because they're sick of living in poverty and this might be a way out for them. Yeah. Or even more so with the family later on with the 18-year-old daughter that has had polio for nine years or yeah. suffering the effects of polio for nine years. We're like, you know what? This guy might be taking a chance, like it would be something perhaps to find a cure for her or make her life better, just the family's life better in general. And all these people are interested in stealing every penny they have. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's so... it's You have a, a general feeling of grubbiness and it does set it apart. I mean, again, it's probably more realistic, as you say, but it very much does set it apart from these other films and that generally the swindlers not always not in every case but the swindlers are taking down other swindlers or other crooks or something like that yeah it's easier to get behind them when they're punching up rather than down all the yeah. way down <laughs> yeah it's a bit it's kind of like your romantic film con man and a lot of the other things here um whereas yeah this is a bit probably more like the real ones are yes um, which i can possibly in some ways makes it better but it definitely makes it harder as a watch yeah yeah and it's yeah it's not helped like this isn't really an issue with the, the story but it's more just the, the mechanical things to help it like for some reason there's a mostly italian actors near but a bunch of american actors who can't speak italian so they're dubbed particularly badly yes it's very strange isn't it i don't uh, i I was trying to find some kind of rationale for that, and I can't. I don't know what the decision-making process for that was. It's very strange. Um, And it's not like it was helping it to get a US release, because it didn't until years later. So, um, yeah, just just weird all round. I know. Although, it was quite interesting to see the... I don't know if you watched the same first. I've got the Criterion Collection version, uh, which was restored. And interesting to note that the... One of the funders for the restoration was the George Lucas Family Foundation. Right. <laughs> but it'd been restored with a, a couple of minutes added back, and I, I suspect that didn't make a big difference. But they hadn't been seen basically since it was released at the Venice Film Festival because it got a bad response there. Yeah. So it was never that big a, a film. Yeah, the the actual dubbing in this, I don't put it in light because it kind of throws you off if it's not done well. But in Italian films in particular of that time, wasn't uncommon. Yeah. It's easier to do rather than trying to get on set audio. And if you look at something like the the Dollars trilogy, Sergio Leone, that we talked about some time ago. Yeah, I think uh, most of those spaghetti of westerns would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of different nationalities in there. And then the idea is to basically you dub, I could do a different dub version for every country it's released in. Hmm. It's still not great though. I prefer my sound to, to be synced up, the sound listening to, to be synced up with the, the mouths. Um, and I don't know, actually, maybe Roderick Crawford was at least having a stab at Italian because his syncing seemed better than a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, yes. But yeah, so again, I assume you watch the actual Italian language version, not an English dub, Scott. Yeah. But it's it's really off-putting when some of them are just way, way off. Yes. So again, had I been somewhat more invested in the story, I'd have noticed, but perhaps been less bothered by it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting period, post-war Italy, a desperately poor part of, um, huge parts of the country, desperately poor uh, in the years following World War II is where this is set. I've seen a handful of films from that time, but not a huge number, so it's again, it's quite an interesting period and location to, to visit, but it's just... Yeah. It's not quite as special as, uh, as I hope, and I, am I 
um, experience with Fellini isn't particularly great either, Scott. He is a filmmaker on our incredibly long list of films to or topics to cover at some point. Yeah. Um, and principally <laughs> for the, I'd like to get to know his work better. He's quite well appreciated. <laughs> yes. And this, I I get the feeling it's like comes with some, it's like middling Fellini. Yeah. Yeah. For all that, though, it's interesting. It's interesting to take it from the point of view of the swindler um, rather than the the swindle itself, just perhaps not particularly successfully so. Yeah. Uh, one last thing, though, my endless fascination with translation of titles continues, and this is another good example. It's called The Swindler in most English language releases. That makes sense. Some territories or some editions released as The Swindlers, which is weird because the Italian isn't... Um, uh, the singular, although not necessarily referring specifically to the man, but it's all it's about one person, really, not the not the group. Mm. But the the translation that you mentioned, the one that's in Wikipedia, at least, uh, I guess somewhere else earlier today, the drum, mm. that's quite misleading because it's not drum like the musical instrument. It's drum like oil drum. Yeah. Um, and I looked up a dictionary before we started here, so if interest, and the various main translations of bidoni are can or bin or trash can or dustbin and i think we're getting closer to it there yeah um and also piece of junk or scam so um <laughs> that's a colloquial term but also with the the more mainstream version of like you know a bin yeah something full of rubbish i think that's a much more useful and accurate translation than the drum yeah yes but fits perfectly with the uh, the scam they're pulling off so yeah makes sense <laughs> yes certainly a lot more so than mm. drum uh, but yeah uh, interesting at least as I, I didn't i quite enjoyed watching it again though did want to have a shower <laughs> yes <laughs> shall we move on then to probably the defining classic of the genre the sting yes uh, here we have what is arguably the con movie George Roy Hill's The Sting, from 1973, a huge hit that influenced so much of the genre in the following decades. Reuniting the director with both Paul Newman and Robert Redford a few years after their very successful partnership in Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, it is the tale of a young grifter, Redford's Johnny Hooker. Look, I know (laughs) I go on about this, but casting a nearly 40-year-old Redford in a role in which he's supposed to be a naive young hustler and is regularly referred to as Kid, is, frankly, taking the piss. <laughs> uh, this kid whose partner and mentor, Luther, Robert Earl Jones, yes, uh, related to that Earl Jones, and even the voice is very similar, is killed after the two rob from the wrong guy. Hooker himself barely escapes, and soon learns that his and Luther's mark was a numbers runner for Robert Shaw's Doyle Lonigan, a New York crime boss and one vindictive son of a bitch. This vindictiveness soon sees Luther, an ex-Luther. Vowing revenge, Hooker seeks out an old friend of Luther's, Newman's Henry Gondorf, who agrees to help the younger man take Lonigan for a very large sum of money. Manpower won't be a problem, with Shaw commenting that, after what happened to Luther, I don't think I can get more than two, three hundred guys. And once the con is decided upon, a setup known as The Wire, in which bets are placed in horse races whose results are already known due to a small artificial delay in transmitting that information, all that remains is to hook the normally careful Lonigan. This is done by engineering him losing a large sum of money to Gondorf in a card game, then having Hooker pretend to be Gondorf's ambitious employee, telling the gangster how his boss cheated him. Hooker then persuades a furious Lonigan not to simply kill Gondorf, but to help Hooker take him for millions and grab his business while they're at it. Bait taken, a fake betting shop is quickly put together, and Hooker and Gondorf's plan to exact revenge for Luther in the only way they can, financially, gather steam. It does double smoothly, of course, with a number of problems cropping up along the way, including Lonigan's suspicions and unpredictability. Interest from Charles Durning's Crooked Cop Snyder and Dana Alcar's FBI agent Polk, and the small matter of the assassin still on Hooker's trail over the matter of the swindled numbers runner, Lonigan being unaware that Hooker is the same man he ordered killed, and it's pulling surprises all the way to the end. The Sting, 
looks great, sounds great, it's funny, smart, extremely well acted, particularly Redford and Newman, who have a great chemistry and do a lot with just looks. And it's not just entertaining, it's fun, with capital letters, and has been one of my favourite films since I was a child. The action is accompanied by a superb score, a combination of Marvin Hamlish compositions and his adaptations of several Scott Joplin ragtime pieces, most notably The Entertainer, which help lend the film a distinctive, jaunty and fun atmosphere. On a side note, I just recently saw several criticisms, some contemporaneous with the film's release, some more recent, that the Scott Joplin music was anachronistic, as if that is any sort of valid concern. I wonder if the same reviewers had a problem with Mozart's music being used in My Left Foot, or Eyes Wide Shut, or Alien, or indeed (laughs) any film ever, as Mozart died in 1791. Stupid criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Digression over. Any criticisms I have are very minor. The framing of the action with the sections of the sting like acts of a play, and the list of the players at the start doesn't necessarily detract but I don't think adds much either and maybe a little arch or self-referential and no that's about it well apart from my aforementioned issue with Redford's character's age something which would only have needed a few tweaked lines to resolve otherwise excellently entertaining yes I agree (laughs) good um (laughs) That, that may be as much as you get from me, because I don't think I've got an awful lot to add. Uh, yes, uh, it is just very entertaining, a very easy watch. Um, two great actors in the lead roles bouncing off each other and a very strong supporting cast one to bounce off too. Not really a weak link in any, any of this. It's uh, entertaining, it's funny, pretty smart. Um, if you're approaching it with the cynicism that you'd expect to with a, this kind of um, this kind of film, then yeah, you're, you're probably not going to be surprised by anything here but that's not really the point of it i don't think but uh it's a uh, it's all very all very entertaining to watch and uh, yes it's just an incredibly easy watch and rightly one of the classics of the, the genre yeah d- deeply entertaining and an awful lot of fun don't know if there's a lot yeah. more to say about it than that really <laughs> uh, I, I was slightly apprehensive waiting for your um repost there scott because i, I told you before that I, I had it's been one of my favorite films for my whole life I, that's what it's been very young when i first watched this and i was like i love it and i've been i was talking it up quite a bit when mm-hmm. we were discussing this episode and i was like scott better not say things it's rubbish i may have to kill him <laughs> that's just who needs no, that so. no I, I i can't this might as well have been the first time i watched it i'm sure at some point in the past i watched it but i remember so little of it that at uh Basically, I was coming to it for the first time here. And like I say, when, when all of these films, no one is what they seem. Don't take it at face value. If you do that, you're not going to be surprised by anything that happens in any of these films. But if you are uh, watching it in a, a rather more passive frame of mind, then sure, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, the kind of little twists that they, they throw here and there um, are certainly entertaining and um, crucially not stupid in a way that uh, certain other films have perhaps mentioned. Um, it's it, it's all it's much more believable as a package, I think, than a lot of other a lot of its imitators are, um, which mm. kind of uh, seem a bit more desperate to surprise you by having just things that are wildly unlikely, or just plots that simply would fall apart with the the merest of um, slightest of deviations from the from the norm. Um, this thing feels an awful lot like it would work. I think primarily because everything that is based on actually was what was actually happening. You know, this is it's um not quite plucked from the, the pages of um the papers, but uh, I think the the actual cons they talk about here really did occur. So mm-hmm. uh, obviously perhaps not quite with the stakes and with these people, but the, the actual mechanics of it are a lot more believable than in many of the other films that we'll talk about. And uh, yeah, along with that and some larger than life characters, it all just makes for a very entertaining film. So yes, very good, very good. If there's anywhere I think it suffers nowadays, it's simply familiarity, not so much with this film, but with yes. the plot and it's mechanics because it's influenced so many films and one of the films we'll go on to talk about later in this episode has yes almost exactly very large number of um similarities particularly the ending and so yeah it it perhaps suffers now to go back to watch it but then it's no it's nearly 50 years old terrifyingly yeah Uh, but yeah it still stands up 
I'm not a great fan of Robert Redford. I don't really dislike him either. Mostly I think of Robert Redford. Yeah. He, he's the guy that's Robert Redford. Um, <laughs> that's true. You can't deny it. <laughs> yes, uh, it's not, he's not someone like, a, like a Dennis Quaid or something that I have strong feelings about. Um, whereas I've always liked Paul Newman. Paul Newman's fantastic. Uh, but the two of them together in this film work particularly well. Yeah. And uh, I just will add one small bit of trivia. Uh, again, this is from the internet science site, the internet of a wrong Wikipedia. Um <laughs> And so I, I didn't have time to check the veracity of this, but I, I assume it's uh, not completely made up. It would be a bit strange. But uh, as of nine, no, so as of twenty eighteen, adjusting for inflation, it is the twentieth highest grossing film in United States history. <laughs> That's quite remarkable. Yes. Yes. Also, um, not for the first time, I've thought that uh, Pauline Kale had terrible taste. As Paul and Kill of New York at the time said, it keeps cranking on section after section and it doesn't have a good spirit. <laughs> I could think of a few films that have a better spirit, but okay, you do you. <laughs> now, talking as you were, Scott, of films that wouldn't work with a slight deviation or something, a character not doing a thing, The Spanish Prisoner. Yes, son. Which, as we firmly established in the previous episode, is fine. Yeah, I think I first stumbled across Spanish Prisoner uh, less because it's a David Mabbitt film, which it is, and more as part of a search to find something that Steve Martin isn't unwatchably awful in. And <laughs> it turns out unbelievable as that may seem. There's at least two such films, but that's a different episode. In this, uh, Campbell Scott's engineer Joe Ross is whisked away to the exotic island of Valverde, probably, to meet with his <laughs> corporate high muckety bucks about the potentially incredible value of the process he has just finalised. I believe it was the process for refining megafinium to unobtainium, and we could all imagine how profitable that would be. He's here with his day-to-day co-workers, Ricky Jay's company lawyer, George Lang, and Rebecca Pigeon's secretary, Susan, who seems to be quite taken with Joe. While there, he meets and befriends Steve Martin's wealthy stranger, Julian Jimmy Dell, who he comes to trust so much that when Dell asks him to carry a package back to his sister in New York, he agrees without even questioning what the contents are. Still, Susan's prompting sees him open it up to find out that Dell is apparently on the up and up and serious about introducing him to his sister. So this friendship would appear to come into its own when the company appears to be positioning themselves to screw Joe out of any bonus or cut in the proceeds of the process, so Joe asks for Dell's advice. Which is, of course, just another domino in a chain started long ago. Now, I don't think anyone is best served by a blow-by-blow plot recap from this point. Uh, Wikipedia is over there, if you need it. Um, Other than to say that Joe does indeed lose the process, and his attempts to regain it and escape from the frame job he's been put in will see him in ever-increasing danger as he runs out of people to trust. Yes, uh, I first watched this a long time ago, maybe even before seeing Glengarry Glen Ross, so the Mimetian dialogue was something of a revelation at that point. Um, it's less so now, of course. Glengar- Glengarry is where that style of speech worked as a chorus, and here it's a couple of good verses. Martin, Scott, with occasional off-key screeching. Rebecca Pigeon. Um, still, mm. if you like this sort of thing, this is the sort of thing you'll like, and thankfully I am a fan of Mammoth's affectations, although it won't change anyone's mind if they're as fond of it. Um, I've also now rewatched this enough over my long decades and decades on this accursed planet that it's certainly past the point of diminishing returns and into actively hurting its territory, so I'm not sure how I would react if I was watching this cold. Um, certainly my first viewing was enhanced by not having quite the level of cynicism I do. Uh, now when approaching movies like this, and I'd perhaps have been less impressed with the plot if I'd applied my now standard operating protocol of assume everyone is not who they claim to be. And that would certainly throw into rather starker relief the failure points of this multi-layered con, which is altogether too fragile to exist outside of a cinema. But that is rather the case with a lot of the genre, I suppose. Even so, I still like Campbell Scott's performance and indeed still wonder why he never had quite the break I feel he deserved as a career. And Steve Martin still manages to surprise me to this day by not being awful here. In fact, (laughs) he's quite good. Turns out that it's just this comedy stuff that he can't do without making my teeth grind into a fine powder. Um, Are you reading my mind, Scott? (laughs) Also my notes for something else I mentioned later. Um, I think despite my earlier protestations that on a first view there's enough densely layered, ultimately silly plons, uh, cons and twists going on to keep this entertaining. So I'm going to recommend this, albeit not as vociferously as I might have done had you asked me sometime back in ugh, the 90s? Eesh. 
I think that's oh, maybe the early 2000s, the first time I remember you mentioning it to me. Mm-hmm. You have been talking about this film for a while. Yes. Yeah, can I ask, before I go on, the other not-awful Steve Martin performance, is it Bowfinger? It is Bowfinger, yes. yes. <laughs> which, I, which admittedly, I have not returned to in a good long while, so I'm, I, I don't want to, just in case he actually was awful in it, and it would ruin my innocence. <laughs> no, uh, I keep thinking, like, I find my internal monologue is thinking... Steve Martin's a terrible actor. He's not, actually. What he is is someone who's a decent actor who makes terrible acting choices, which is not the same thing. Yes. And, well, he's not funny, but... Look, I I will submit another entirely tolerable, in fact, even quite good Steve Martin performance, and that's Planes, Trains and Automobiles. There can't be three. (laughs) I mean, he's obviously... There are sort of like three and a half against something with dimension later. I've, um, I won't mention it just now, though. But um, he's obviously completely acted off screen by John Candy, who was great. Mm. Uh, but yeah, um, playing trains and automobiles, he's not bad in. And he's playing more of a straight guy, and that nicely works for him. Yeah. Um, and here in Spanish Prisoner is a sort of slightly sinister character. He actually, he works. Yeah. So it's not his abilities, it's his choices, um, mm. and the fact he's not funny. Um <laughs> So, Which, to be fair, is a problem for a comedian. <laughs> a problem for well, mm, for someone who's, who's cast as a comedy actor, like, but mm. not saying he's a comedian because he's not funny. That's <laughs> kind of a prerequisite. But yes, um, but you mentioned Scott getting um, to the point of diminishing returns. I got to that in the second viewing, which I yeah. did yeah. yesterday uh, or the day before. I had never seen this, partly put off by. Uh, God, Steve Martin. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Already trying to put him out of my mind. So I put off by Steve Martin, but I remember you having talked about this a number of times, not like repeatedly or anything, mm-hmm. uh, but a number of times over the years. Uh, finally watched it when we did our David Mamet one, which is earlier this year, our yeah. David Mamet episode, not that long ago. And it was fine. That's the best I could say it was fine. I do like Campbell Scott a lot. Uh, I don't think I've seen him in much. The only thing that immediately comes to mind this is Roger, Roger Dodger. Roger Dodger, that's it, yeah. Yeah. So, he's um, been in other things that I've seen, I think, but he, he must have had such a minor role. I don't remember him being in yeah, them at yeah. all. So, yeah. The only other thing is, I do remember is Roger Dodger with Jesse Eisenstein. Mm-hmm. Eisen, that's not his name. Eisenberg? Eisenstein? Eisenberg, yeah. yeah. I knew Eisenstein didn't say right. Uh, <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg. And yeah, really liked that, but that was like 2002. That's mm-hmm. uh, two decades ago now. Again, I'll probably see him in bit pieces, bit parts, but not much. It's a pity because I really like him. And the Mimetian dialogue is, yeah, it depends so much on the delivery. Yeah. Uh, again, like we we talked about, I don't know, maybe you just can't write female characters well, David Mamet, but when we talked about House of Games, yeah, which is another con film, but we've already done that. Yeah. Um, uh, the woman in that, Lindsay... Lindsay Mamet wife. Luan. That's yeah. <laughs> Very early role um, for her, yeah. Yeah. Um, I forget her surname, but you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. She was David Mamet's wife at the time. She's the star of House of Games. She's really wooden. Yeah. And it really makes the, the dialogue obviously Thunk. bad. Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas with the right actor, the dialogue sings. Look at every single person in Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. So yeah, here it works. Steve Martin can deliver the dialogue quite well. And Campbell Scott, yeah, he's great. Ben Gazar is a bit stiff. Ricky J, he doesn't have a lot to do, actually. No. I would say. Uh, but yeah, Rebecca Pigeon is just, she's wooden. Yeah, she she's the At obvious least. weak link in it. I, I wonder if it's as much the editing as I... There's something about she's been given like like buffers on the start and end of her speech, which makes it sound like she's just dropped in from another conversation <laughs> entirely. Um, whereas the whole point of it is, you know, it's it, the way it's written is people kind of interrupting and stopping each other. The way that, in in a way, that conversations can actually happen. But this is taken away that conversations can actually happen and filmed it in a way that they couldn't, and it seems weird in places. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's I don't know. I mean, she's not bad and she's a lot better in heist mm-hmm. yeah but she just i don't know the the, the dialogue just not coming snappily out of her mouth and it's yeah um she's not a good match for the dialogue at the very least yeah that's it's reasonable yeah um which makes me but the bigger problem i have with the film is just the script now 
I was very conscious both of the times that I've watched this of the fact that I am, you know, a thousand years old or whatever I am now. I forget, it's been mm. a while. And I've seen a lot of films. So there's always a possibility. And yes, <laughs> there's like this uh, the undercurrent, like you mentioned, Scott, of, you know, just, I'll tip it slightly less politely, being a suspicious bastard, you just assume nobody has what they, yeah. what they <laughs> seem to be. Uh, so I'm conscious of the fact that I've watched a lot of films in the genre. So I mean, are there conventions here that if you're not seeing as many, you'd be more surprised by things? But but no, I just I don't think David Mamet writes twists particularly well. And I mentioned that in our David Mamet episode. Mm. But I got to the point of diminishing turn returns with this very quickly. And so when I watched it the last time, it was fine. I quite enjoyed it. And, it's not been that long since the last time, so there's that to take into account. Yeah. But I watched it a couple of days and I've very much downgraded it from fine to... Mm. <laughs> yeah. And however you would write that sound. It's also... I, mean, I, th- I think part of the problem is the direction, actually, um, whether that's played into the editing issues you're talking about, Scott. Whether David Mamet himself has directed the editor, Barbara Tulliver, to edit in a particular way around <laughs> Rebecca Pigeon, but... The whole thing, it just feels kind of slightly clunky, slightly... Yeah, it it felt... Stagey is not quite the right word for it, because it has implications of things that the rest of the film doesn't really back up to, but the way the dialogue is handled seems a bit kind of stagey. Well, it, there's a lot of kind of projecting to the back of the room in places as well, which didn't really fit in with the whole jive of it being like an actual conversation. Yeah. Um, things like that, they don't quite. It's just a bit alien, which is odd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not even that, but more just like the way sort of things are flagged up. It all seemed a bit artless, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because like, there's so many things like very deliberate obvious sort of clues and even the kind of emotions that like the camera lingers on for a bit and again maybe this is a problem with editing that it yeah. seems so long but like there's the x-ray machine on the, the start of the film oh there's going to be an x-ray machine that's important later is that what you're saying oh it turns out an x-ray machine is sort of important later yeah and the video security system and then the passing of the fbi business card to susan then, for some reason, as if like it's just going to try to give away everything at the beginning of the film, Susan constantly saying, "Anybody could be anybody." Yeah, it, it just it's so artless. Yeah, and like, the lingering shots of the sunshine bakery bag and the be prepared knife, and it's saying things like, "Nobody looks at Japanese tourists." It's like it all feels very much like pay attention. It's going to be a quiz later. Yes. giving you like extra chance to get the points. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's <laughs> um, not subtle, there's no hot regards. No, yeah. um, and this time, I, I wasn't watching it any less critically the last time, I think, but maybe being more familiar, there was sort of more mental capacity to think about things in a slightly different way. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I came with this, this huge list of problems, the film, uh, primarily of which, and I don't know why it didn't occur to me the first time, I was like, who keeps a picture of their sister in their wallet? That's weird. <laughs> that's really weird. And it's a really crucial um, plot point, which is why it's in the wallet, but that's a weird thing to do. Yeah. And not a relevant thing, but when they're in the, or when Ricky Jay's been to the casino in San Estef, that island operates on the world's old. Yes. <laughs> that world operates in the world's oldest banknotes. Yes. Which <laughs> like just like a four paper. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, somebody took a bunch of receipts out of a um, jacket they hadn't put on since the 1970s and that was their money. Yeah. Look, it's been hard since Matrix left the island, you know. <laughs> and there's other there's things to just, like, in the structure it feels... And it's the other thing I see a lot because it kind of bothers me, like, time frames in films that sometimes the team seem too compressed. And this is another one. It happens over four or five days, I guess. Yeah. You see a calendar right near the start when he's meant to go to, well, to dinner with Steve Martin. I think it's the 12th of March. It ends on St. Patrick's Day, so it's like five days. Yeah. It takes place over. Um, but then Steve Martin advises him, uh, Joe, that uh, they'll start treating you cruelly. And then it happens the next day. Yeah. <laughs> That's when his uh, company starts trying to screw him over. I'm like, I would be a bit suspicious about that. But Joe isn't because I like Amber Ross, but his character's a simpleton. Why would you actually bring the secret of MacGuffin formula with you? Well, you'd do it if you're a simpleton. And, like, and Joe, 
signs this big elaborate card that turns out to be a request for um, asylum to the Council of uh, Consul of Venezuela. And then that huge card, he didn't notice that all of the writing was Spanish. He didn't notice one word. Yeah. <laughs> no, because he's a simpleton and also the script <laughs> demands it, the plot demands it. So yeah, it, just, it sort of fell apart for me on a second viewing. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, a lot of the films had been there first, but like they were just kind of more highlighted the second time. Yeah, you, you can and, you can give it a bit of a pass on the first view because you know it, it depends. I mean, I think all of these films, if you were sitting there pausing it, making notes, would fall apart instantly. But if it's good enough and interesting enough, and you're happy enough to buy into the characters, and you, in this instance, I guess liked Campbell Scott's performance enough to kind of buy into him as an everyman and all that kind of thing, and just go with the experience of it, then it's certainly much easier to live with it on a first viewing. And yeah, every yeah. time you watch it after that, you're, you're going to pick up. Um, so yeah. yeah, but again, as I was saying, you could say that about pretty much every film that we're going to talk about here. Um, to an extent, yeah. I think. The problem is, now whether it's because I enjoyed other films we're going to talk about more, maybe, but this feels like it's, the issue is not so much that you like one thing depends on like a coincidence or someone acting a certain way, it's that well, yeah, so all of many this, of the yeah. things do. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's not quite to the extent of the game, which is like a just genuinely bad film because it's <laughs> so nonsensical. Yeah. Not a single thing in that film makes sense and any one thing that anybody does definitely in that film, all of which would be the sort of thing anybody would do. Yeah. If they weren't in a film that demanded it, they did it because of the script. <laughs> It'd fall apart. It's not quite that level, but it's not far off. Yeah. Because yeah. like, you're relying on, for instance, confronting Jimmy Dale at the garage when he sees him. They plant the, the driver with the scar on his face outside the door, so he sees him. But he might just be pissed off or maybe not remember that guy. Yeah, yeah. But you're relying on Joe going up and confronting Jimmy Dale and there's no real suggestion that the villains can really like think on their feet and improvise if things don't go as planned they've all read the script they all know it's going to work (laughs) like why after everything that's happened all the people have screwed him over and all the things have turned out to be fake why trust Susan especially given Susan was the source of the fake FBI business card yeah (laughs) <laughs> and then got suspicious police officers at the airport, but an argument's enough to make them not even check. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And then, <laughs> like, I know this isn't really like the same thing, but it's like, it stuck out to me this time. Like, why does Susan have a ticket to San Estef and not from San Estef? She'd already used her ticket to there to get there in the first place. Why is her ticket? I'm getting to the weeds on that one. <laughs> I'll accept, right? But then, yeah, Joe um, is candy this bag, and apparently a cheap plastic camera weighs the same as a loaded pistol. <laughs> mm. And then Joe just happens to leave the airport, which is presumably unexpected. Everybody's expecting to get arrested in the airport, possibly shot, and then gets on the bus for which, like, picks that bus outside the airport. Nobody's expecting to go outside the airport. And the bus that he picks, US Marshals didn't fall him onto, were already queuing for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he happens to get on that boat that Steve Martin is already on and the US Marshal's already on. Again, it's like the dread script. <laughs> uh, yeah, so sadly, this just completely fell apart for me in the second viewing. And Campbell Scott's enough to carry quite a bit of it on his own. Uh, the, the dialogue isn't too badly slotted by other people. It's just it's not right in their mouths. They don't deliver it well. But yeah, it's unfortunately definitely considerably worse on a second viewing mm-hmm. and also on a final note this the ridiculous concealed weapon some sort of shotgun come rifle by size and weight that takes an age to draw raise and aim and to hit a target a few meters away that's about to kill someone but i guess it looks cool concealed inside a souvenir right <laughs> yes um not brilliant this film i have to say not brilliant <laughs> What annoys me most is, despite it being called the Spanish Prisoner, describing the Spanish Prisoner Con, it's not a Spanish Prisoner Con in the slightest, it's a Kansas City Shuffle, but celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> we'll move on to Nine Queens then. Okay, so uh, we're heading south now to Buenos Aires and the Argentinian film Nueve Arenas, or Nine Queens, in which Ricardo Darín plays scuzzy conman Marcos. While in a petrol station one day, Marcus observes young grifter Juan, Gaston Pals, or Argentinian Billy Boyd, as he has been filed into my head, (laughs) 
He observes him get greedy and try to run a hustle a second time in succession. He's found out by the staff and Marcos decides on the spot to pose as a police officer, pretending to arrest Juan to get him away from the scene. Marcos is not being altruistic, of course. His usual partner's out of town and grifting is easier with someone else and he persuades Juan to join forces with him for the day. During the course of the day, Marcos teaches Juan a few tricks and Juan displays his own ability, while the two also learn some other, more personal things about each other. Juan's dad is in prison and he is trying to raise money to bribe a judge to get him out. And Marcos is in a state of permanent war with his sister Valeria, who hates him and believes he has stolen her and their younger brother Fede's inheritance. Juan and Marcos's paths cross out of Valeria that day because she calls Marcos to the hotel where she works to ask him to deal with a customer. A former associate of Marcos's who took ill and started calling Marcos's name when he recognised Valeria. This associate, Sandler, was trying to reach Vidal Gondalf. It's impossible to not see that name and think of Gandalf, it's really hard. <laughs> was trying to reach Vidal Gandolfo, a rich Spanish businessman staying at the hotel. Gandolfo is a philatelist and Sandler, a forger, happens to have an extremely good copy of a sheet of very rare, very valuable Weimar Republic stamps known as the Nine Queens. The stamps are good enough to pass an initial inspection, but they wouldn't stand up to laboratory testing. Gandolfo, though, is being deported to Venezuela the next day for tax irregularities, without time for such tests. So if the deal can be done today, they're quids in. Marcos strikes a tough bargain with Sandler and takes the stamps. After their first meeting with Gandolfo, though, the stamps are stolen by thieves on a motorbike, then unwittingly discarded, leaving Marcos and Juan to come up with a con on short notice to acquire their genuine stamps and still turn a profit. Is it possible, though, that this seeming short con is in fact part of a much larger long con, and that the mark is not who we first believe? Seems unlikely, given the context of this podcast. Yes. Well, yes, obviously it is. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be asking that question. But uh, the fun comes for the discovery of that and the motivations for it, with everything explained succinctly and not excessively in a low-key final scene that I really appreciate. I find Nueve Reinas a very well-crafted and well-acted film, especially Ricardo Darín, whom I'm a huge admirer of, with satisfying twists and turns, and a strong, funny script from writer-director Fabian Bielinski. A script, let me add, considerably better than anything David Mamet achieved in this genre, because I'm not letting go of that bone. <laughs> Although, it's more fun to annoy Craig with it, and he's not here, unfortunately. <laughs> I really recommend Nueve Reinas, and I doubt many English speakers will have seen it before. You may, however, be familiar with 24's Criminal, starring John C. Reilly, Diego Luna, Maggie Gyllenhaal and Peter Mullen. Which is the same film, more or less, but mostly less. Out of interest, I watched Criminal today, before we started recording, and it's nearly a scene-for-scene remake, and pretty close to a line-for-line remake too. Even allowing for knowing how the plot progresses, it's a substantially worse film, especially in the acting, which was quite a surprise, and in the few places where it deviates from Fabian Bielinski's original, it is materially worse. So avoid the remake and watch the real deal instead. Hmm. I know I've seen Criminal, but I can't bring to mind anything that happened in it. Although, of course, I could I just be... I just watched it right <laughs> um, Yeah. Uh, I have little bones to pick with Nine Queens. It's in a remarkably solid film. I think mainly because Ricardo Darin's so good in it. Mm. Um, certainly carries a lot of a, a lot of the uh, heavy lifting of the film, um, but I don't think anyone else is particularly bad either. And it's a, a, a very solid little con narrative going through there with some better than average character work for this kind of thing. Characters that you can actually like and believe in, even if they are, you know, obviously sketchy and uh, and all that, but they they feel kind of genuine and they feel uh, like real people uh, in a way that you know, well. Uh, Certainly in a way that, um, you know, the Spanish prisoner didn't do. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's an awful lot of like in here and an awful lot to dislike. And certainly it is it is well worth uh, watching. Uh, shame about uh, Fabian Belinsky. I think this is... Died age 47. I think this is only... He's only did two films, which is a bit of a shame for, for this. Um, certainly a talent that could have gone to, to many good things if uh, this is anything to base that projection on. But, yeah... Uh, very good, uh, very enjoyable uh, little film. I don't know if there's anything much more to it. I don't know if it's quite worth the kind of what, 
20 awards it was nominated for. Um, but um, yes, it is good and it is enjoyable. And what's <laughs> wrong with that? You, you know what I mean? Um, I would certainly uh, recommend this to anyone. It's a clever little uh, crime genre outing and um, certainly one of the top half of the films we're talking about today, I think. Uh, yeah, this good. This good. Yeah, um, I really, really enjoy it. I think it's the second time that I've seen it. I didn't remember all of the details, but I knew like the main twist and mm-hmm. still thoroughly enjoyed it this time around. I know that I saw Criminal when it came out and I saw that first. I, I probably saw it in the cinema with you, Scott. Who would have thought so, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think immediately afterwards, I knew that this was better, but I couldn't remember much about Criminal and now I've gone back to watch Criminal. Like, now I know why. Nice. Yeah, this would be probably vying for, for second spot in my, if I were to list the films in this episode. The Sting, obviously, is number one. Mm-hmm. This would tie for our last film. But again, <laughs> there's yeah. not much between them in terms of how much I enjoyed them, so that's fine. Uh, this very much stands up to repeated viewing, and a lot of it is the character work, I think, because even if you know the twist, the characters are interesting. And it's it's weird how flat and just like not believable as a f- um, a dynamic the acting is in the remake. Um, yeah, odd given the cast, you know what? <laughs> exactly, that's why yeah. I said I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I'm still not surprised that Ricardo Darín is so good. I've I've liked him for a long time. He's another person who's on our list as a potential topic for our podcast. Mm-hmm. It's maybe something you hear at some point in the future. Um, like I've seen him in anything where I've not liked him, and. He's unfortunately not been well served by American remakes of his films no. because the remake of Secret in Their Eyes is also well, substandard. It's, like garbage. Yes. it's kind of sort of bland, anodyne, and pointless, which not a surprise given Julia Roberts is in it, I guess. But uh, <laughs> there we go. Uh, but that film even wastes Chiwetel Ejiofor, for, as I recall. It's just, it's, it's not a great film. So he's not been particularly well served by that. Yeah, it's just, it's really solid. I like it. I mean, the evil. The whole cast really is acting really well because the the guy that's playing Sandler. I mean, I'm watching that section where he's in the, the changing rooms at the hotel, thinking, mm. "Is this acting? Is this like method acting? This guy actually needs a doctor." Yes, <laughs> that's quite convincing. Yeah, that guy looks genuinely unwell. <laughs> Whereas, like the corresponding scene in the criminal, um, the guy's pretending to be out of breath a bit, and it's rubbish. <laughs> Yeah, so really, really solid film. Great acting, great character work, and uh, an interesting twist. So definitely one that is recommended. Indeed. Okay, so uh, head back north to the United States once again then for confidence. What is that about, Scott? Yes, well, my knowledge, memory, and expectations of confidence heading into this episode were best characterised by the numeral zero. Although, <laughs> a quick glance at IMDb and seeing James Foley directing, he of Glengarry Glen Ross frame, mentioned earlier, um, certainly raised some hope, balanced only by Doug Young's shared writing credit on The Cloverfield Paradox. Which way is this oh, one going to fall? <laughs> I did not look that up. Um, Explains oh no. <laughs> it, it explains a lot um, to maybe give away. So um, anyway, Ed, in here, um, Edward Burns's Jake Vig and his gang of near do wells have just finished conning some mark out of a stack of cash, which will soon have lasting consequences when they find out that the mark was working for a local climb lord. Just as in this thing, of course. Um, but here it's Dustin Hoffman's Winston the King. Uh, Jake is encouraged to proactively make amends after one of his gang is found dead and meets with King to come to an arrangement. They plan to con a large sum of money from one of King's rivals, Robert Forster's Morgan Price, who happens to own a bank. Uh, King agrees, but insists that his goon, Frankie G's Lupus, strings along with his usual gang of Paul Giamatti's Gordo and Brian Van Holt's Miles, also recruiting Rachel Weiss's Lily to help plan to befriend and bamboozle bank VP Leon Ashby, played by the dependable John Carroll Lynch. Getting in the way of things are the gang's semi-tame bribed cops, played by Louise Guzman and Donald Logue, who are being blackmailed into, well, doing their jobs by Andy Garcia's special agent, Gunther Bhutan, who's been on the trail of Vig for many years and sees this as a prime opportunity to take him down. And look, I suppose that's all the setup you need. And by this point in the episode, I don't think you'll be too surprised to find out that <laughs> things are not quite what they seem. And perhaps you can't trust anyone involved in any aspect of this film. 
or most of the today's films for that matter, but uh, this one in particular has a highly unreliable narrator, which is perhaps the closest this film came to really displeasing me. Uh, the rest of it is glossy and slick enough that any emotion refuses to adhere to it, be that positive or negative. It's pacey enough that it's never boring. It's a very easy, fairly enjoyable watch, but it's not a film that's going to make any kind of impact, apart from one day in the future wondering why it didn't show up on Ben Affleck's IMDb page before remembering that it did in fact star the discount Poundland Ben Affleck, Edward Burns. <laughs> If I was in a worse mood, I would perhaps be meaner about a film that gathers this amount of talent together without giving them anything particularly remarkable to do, but I suppose that also means no one's particularly bad. Um, I can't think of a lot else to say about confidence other than to reiterate that it's a reasonably enjoyable watch that I've already largely forgotten. So it's a good piece of disposable entertainment, which makes it an easy uh, recommendation that you rent rather than buy, if that's still a thing. Yeah, and If it shows up on your Netflix feed or whatever and you're in the market with this kind of thing, it is a perfectly disposable and enjoyable piece of entertainment, but I mean, I, I cannot imagine it staying in your memory more than a day or so. So, yeah, it is what it is, and it's fine. I've had the DVD of this for a very long time, and the cellophane is actually off, which makes me think I did watch it at some point. <laughs> um, but I, in fact, I have quite strong memories of having watched it, and that like I knew the name and the stars and stuff in the year, and like was that so logically for me. So I damn certain I watched it, but. When I sat down to watch this time, I'm like, I don't remember this. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I don't disagree with pretty much anything you say. It's, got, it's solid. Yeah. It's a solid, entertaining film. Enjoyed my time with it. It's only just over an hour and a half. It's the right sort of length for this. It, it bombs on a nice clip. The biggest, well, one, yeah, probably the biggest problem I have, with, other than like not enough Paul Giamatti, but when is there ever enough Paul Giamatti? Yes. Um, the answer is, of course, never. Apart from maybe Sideways, which is just the right amount of Paul Giamatti. <laughs> and that's an excellent film. It's, um, it, you mentioned the unreliable narrator, and it's like, it's got a narrator. Why does it have a narrator? It doesn't need a narrator. Yes. The next film we're coming to also has a narrator, but while it's um, perhaps also unnecessary, it doesn't bother as much there. Although this film, as with The Brothers Bloom, doesn't commit the sin of so many films with narrations that's why was one of the major reasons I dislike them is that at least it's consistent yeah the rest of them may be a bit less but like you know there's a bit of narration at the start and it carries on regularly if infrequently during the film whereas like a films that just like drop in a bit of narration like maybe twice in the film why did you bother it's yeah. just you've not made your film very well <laughs> it's like at least if it's set up as part of the way you're telling the story I'm a lot happier with it. Yeah. Um, although, again, in this film, it's mostly disposable. Why it's set up the way it is with like him on his knees on the ground telling his story to this guy at the start of the night, telling a flashback, it adds nothing. There's no reason for that set up to be there. So like, it would work just as well, possibly better without it. Although I don't think it particularly harms it. Uh, that's my biggest issue with the film. Mm-hmm. The rest is, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I'm going to repeat myself. It's just it's solid. I like pretty much everybody that's in it. Whatever happened, to Edward Burns, Saving Private Ryan, and this, and I can't remember another damn thing he was in. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> There's like a remarkable similarity between him and Ben Affleck. So, um, you make a joke, but it's also you know not far off the mark. Um, and this is a film that, so what I mentioned earlier, it very much borrows stuff from the Sting. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Particularly the Andy Garcia character. But I suspect, again, just in general, knowing the genre, I think I could see coming what was happening there. But it, because it's so similar to The Sting, yeah, that, that's definitely not a surprise. And there are a few other bits in this film in particular that have that sort of the Sting sort of feel to it. But yeah, it, it's it's fun. Yes, it's it's fairly disposable. But it's quite like when it's got a good cast, it's squandered considerably less than criminal, as I've mentioned a little while ago. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just a film that I don't quite know how to stop talking about to move on to the next one. <laughs> it, it, it's hard to recommend you go out of your way to watch it, but if it stumbles up onto your on your path and you can't get out of the way of it, then it's not going to be an unenjoyable uh, time while it rolls over you. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's. Probably the glossiest of the films we're speaking about today. It's the slickest, maybe. Um, 
it's by no means the best, but it's probably the the kind of most digestible. Yeah, I mean, I can, there's a place I for that, that and um, uh, yeah, like you say not, not damning it with faint praise. It is yeah, perfectly fine, but um, yeah, it, it is. Yeah. It, it's not going to be. It's, it's not. You're not going to remember it in a week. Uh, that that no. sort of thing. You know what I mean? No, it's not special. It's um, it's a good pop song of a film. Yeah, yeah. You know, you enjoy your time with it. It sort of satisfies on a kind of fairly basic level. It's produced and polished, but you're probably not going to get a lot of depth out of it. Not going to want to return to it a lot. Yeah, yeah, that works quite well as an analogy. If that's how I feel. really solid entertaining. It's much more enjoyable than Il Bidoni, but you know, there's not really interesting characters in the way that film has. Yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's not saying anything. But yeah, yeah, you could certainly do worse than watch it. Cool. Let's move on then to our last film today, The Brothers Bloom. Yes. Uh, the con movie is quite a popular genre, and there were quite a few films we could have selected for this episode. Some of the discarded options were the curiously popular A Fish Called Wanda, which, after recently rewatching for your benefit, uh, I can confirm is very much the terrible film I thought it to be, so avoid that. Uh, <laughs> the Prestige, which is excellent, but one we've covered before. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which is fine, but Steve Martin's gardening makes me want to claw my eyes out. <laughs> Though clawing his out seems fairer. <laughs> this is the half good Steve Martin film I mentioned yes. earlier, Scott. <laughs> and The Good Liar, a con-come-revenge thriller starring, starring Helen Mirren and Ian McKellen that doesn't quite stick its landing, but is quite interesting. No, instead we chose to finish with a film in which Mark Ruffalo is the mastermind of many elaborate cons in which features magic tricks and exotic locations. And no, no, it's not Now You See Me. (laughs) Obviously, it's not Now You See Me because Now You See Me is insultingly stupid, nonsensical trash of the lowest order (laughs) and, more pertinently, we, collectively, are offended to our very souls that the sequel to Now You See Me is called now you see me too, and not now you don't. It, it was, was right, right there. there. <laughs> what we selected instead is 20 Ways to Brothers Bloom. So, here's a rather odd take on the genre. Con movie is romantic comedy. A romantic comedy, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and being both written and directed by Ryan Johnson, you know that it's about family, and that's what's so powerful about it. That's a joke that at least four of you will get. <laughs> Narrated, and apparently not Scott, I'm disappointed. <laughs> Narrated by Ricky Jay. Yes, him again. I mean, I liked Ricky Jay, but other magicians are available. <laughs> the Brothers Bloom tells the story of two brothers, Stephen and Bloom, possibly making the latter's name Bloom Bloom, <laughs> which honestly just makes me think of Basil Brush. <laughs> played by... You can count me to get the Basil Brush jokes. That's <laughs> <laughs> played by respectively Mark Ruffalo and Adrian Brody. During a troubled youth, in which the siblings were kicked out of a succession of multiple foster homes, reasons for this including sold our furniture, molested cat and larceny, <laughs> Stephen writes his first con as a way to get Bloom to talk to a girl, and has an epiphany and finds his calling, writing and creating elaborate cons and bringing them to fruition changing reality to match his narrative. Though successful, the adult Bloom is tired, after a quarter of a century, of feeling like nothing more than an actor in Stephen's plays, and desires something real. He thus leaves Stephen in pursuit of some reality. Three months later, Stephen finds Bloom in Montenegro, enjoying whatever reality the bottom of a bottle offers, and persuades him to return to the little outfit for one last con. The mark this time is Rachel Weisz's Penelope, a reclusive polymath and heir to a substantial fortune, and whose trust it is Bloom's job to earn. Once hooked, Penelope joins Stephen, Bloom, and their silent partner Bang Bang, Ringo Kikuchi, aboard a steamer bound for Greece. From whence, with Penelope under the illusion that she has joined a gang of smugglers, they head for Prague, Mexico and St. Petersburg. And much of what happens along the way, and I ask you now to steady yourself for a shocking revelation here, <laughs> may not be what it seems. And Bloom falling in love with Penelope is absolutely not part of Stephen's master plan in which he tries to reshape the world and create endings. No. (laughs) 
like the Sting, the on-screen titles for the different sections are unnecessary, though here may be more acceptable and legitimate due to the film's meta-narrative narrative or more sort of narrative-meta-narrative, um, and indeed may well be a direct reference to this thing. The Brothers Bloom is in many ways a story about stories, and has been criticised for being too pleased with itself and its many literary references, and for being, to use the word for a second time in this episode, too arch. And I can see where such criticisms are coming from, but I don't share them. I just had a hell of a time with this film and enjoyed it thoroughly. It's beautiful, funny, smart and twisty. Though what the big twist was going to be, I was never in doubt. Particularly due to a line delivered in the first half of the film by Ruffalo that had about a hundred lanterns hanging on it. It was the when and the how that kept me guessing. And its central pairing is excellent, with Adrian Brody in particular capable of a really nice mix of comedy and pathos. Rachel Weiss adds a lively optimism to the group dynamic, and Rinko Kikuchi's wordless role provides not just humour and interest, but helps stop this being a total sausage fest, largely setting apart from everything else in this episode. <laughs> the Brothers Bloom also has the second and third best comedy implementations of a Lamborghini after The Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> and while that wasn't the mental list I was keeping, it certainly is now. Right. The thing about uh, this film is that I really like Wes Anderson films, which is good, because apparently Ryan Johnson likes Wes Anderson films too, because he made one. Because um, th- this is largely what The Brothers Bloom is. It's, uh, if Wes Anderson directed this thing, you'd wind up with this. Um, it's, it is kind I'm of, not saying that's a bad thing. <laughs> absolutely not. That's why I love it. Um, <laughs> it, it it's deliciously quirky. Um, I, I'm not sure if I'll uh, return to this, but it's quite a massive flop by this accounting here and it really doesn't deserve to be um i think there's a lot of a lot of joy to be had here it's just a lot of fun mm-hmm. um it is almost calibrated directly to my kind of sense of humor um there's lots of great little character interplay i mean the actual long stand the con itself is the weakest part of it it does not warrant thinking about it in the slightest because it doesn't really stand up to any scrutiny at all but it doesn't matter because the whole point of it is just to give Characters and um, actors like uh, Ruffalo and Brody and Weiss, you know, the opportunities to bounce off each other and get like great supporting acts like Maximilian Snelland. Isn't it good to see Robbie Coltrane again? Um, yes, uh, all films need Robbie Coltrane in the cupboard. Yes, <laughs> too early, too early. Uh, yes, it's uh, it's it's just an awful, awful lot of fun. Um, yep. It is. I I don't know. I've not heard anyone trying to. Well, here's the thing. I, I guess I kind of my Ryan Johnston radar must have been turned off. I I I, vague, I was vaguely aware of the Brothers Room um, appearing, but I didn't see it at the time. Um, despite loving Brick, and yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of been a blind spot. Yeah, the name is familiar to me. Um, that I remember that a film called Brothers Room mm-hmm. being released, but how that how I missed that having like you liked Brick so much. I don't know how I missed this film. Yeah, and I mean, it's not very much like Brick, um, other than that kind of certain meta-ness that Brick also has to it as well, I suppose. But I think this is very much due for reappraisal. If you have not seen this and you also like Knives Out, then it's certainly this should be on your your to-watch list um, because it has similar kind of affectations to it and... um, if you, I think a lot of the kind of reasons why you might like Knives Out would kind of carry over to the Brothers of Bloom, and a lot of reasons, as as I mentioned earlier, if you like kind of Wes Anderson type stuff, this has got a kind of bit more of that kind of whimsy, whimsical nature to it. That's showing up in Brothers of Bloom too, and it's just a really nice mix. I was heartily entertained through all of this, and I, I, I will gladly watch this many times over. I don't think I have a great deal of uh, anything particularly insightful to say about it, other than to say. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, It is definitely something that you should be uh, giving consideration to watching if you have not done so already. Yeah. um, Again, we're talking slide cigarette papers between this and Revy Rainers for me. Mm -hmm. They're such different films. Yeah. There's humour in Nine Queens, but there's it's not like this is a a comedy film. Yes, really funny, Mm -hmm. but like it's it's not necessarily better. It's just different, Uh, and that's fine. Uh, Yes. But yeah, this is something I'll return to again. I, I laughed heartily at several points. I cackled at some points, particularly the the first crash with the Lamborghini. Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I cackled. 
Look, it's and a- I, I'm not talking about. I will not be keeping a, a list of um, comedy implementations of Lamborghinis in film. It may just all, there may only be the three of them. Yes, between the two in this and one in the Wolf of Wall Street. But I'll, I'm keeping that list now, thanks to this. Nothing else. Here's how good it is. Andy Nyman's in it, and it's still good. How? Yes. Um, I'll admit I was um, slightly concerned when Andy Nyman popped up near the start because I'll leave about oh dear that's Andy yes. Nyman. Um, <laughs> that's not what I wanted to see. <laughs> who, who's um, whose single positive um, contribution to the world is a scene in some film. The film I can't even remember now, but, <laughs> but where um, he's told that you don't cook all pies for thirty minutes. <laughs> So I remember that scene, but not the film it's in. Um, it was the only good scene in Severance. Is that what it was called? Yes. I, 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 you could be telling me I made up name for a film. I couldn't <laughs> actually tell you. No. I only remember that. But um, yes, um, Andy and I popping up like, oh, that wasn't good. Uh, I think the only problem I had with it, though, is I clocked Joseph Gordon-Levitt really early on. Hmm. And I didn't know anything about the film other than like the director and the, star, the main stars. Yeah, And so I was like... Expected for the whole rest of the film for him to pop up. Though he, well, obviously, it's half of the film. I thought he was going to be like a regular member of the crew, right? Yeah. Uh, but, um, so that was because he was so conspicuously there in that dance scene in Berlin. Yeah, in the yeah. club in Berlin. Like, oh, is he in it? That's great. Like, oh, he's not. I guess. <laughs> um, I guess he's just there because of Rick. But yeah, it's just it's really really entertaining. That's what it is, and it, it's a real shame that this just bombed like it did. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely did not deserve it. Yeah. And you know, unlike Now You See Me, it, it's a good use of Mark Ruffalo's talents because I like Mark Ruffalo a great deal. Yes. More Mark Ruffalo in good films, please. Thank you, world. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you for attending my TED Talk. <laughs> that will wrap us up for today. And if you'd like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason, then please do so at podcast at fudsonfilm.com. That's email if you remember what that is, uh, or Twitter at fudsonfilm or on facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. And until next time, I'll bid you adieu. And I'm sure that Drew will do too. Fare thee well. <laughs>